Well, good morning. Welcome to everybody who's joining us on site and those who are joining us online this morning as well. Well, as was mentioned, today we are kicking off a new series. It is one that I have been looking forward to for a long time and one that I've actually been planning for quite a while as well. And we're calling it Piecing It Together, God's Plan for Marriage. Now, even before we jump into it, I just want to say this. I firmly believe that there is something for everyone in these next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about this topic. Whether you're uh, perhaps a, a newlywed or if you are hoping to one day be a newlywed. If maybe you're a little more seasoned in the area of marriage or, or maybe you're, you're single. Either at the early in life or later in life you find yourself in the stage of being single. I, I believe there's something in here for you. Because what we're going to be talking about is not just marriage but about intimate relationships. And the reality is, is that God has created us all for intimate relationships. Now, let's understand what that word means. Because sometimes we hear the word intimate, and our mind automatically goes to like, like physical intimacy types of things. But the word intimate itself actually simply has to do with things that are, that are closest to us, things that are the most personal to us. And certainly we have relationships that would fit that category, that are our most intimate, our most closest relationships, won't we? We use this in other parts of life as well, don't we? we? We may talk about going for an intimate meal or an intimate dinner. And I hope, and I really hope, this will be a real blessing to you this series, if your definition of an intimate dinner is like the Costco food court. Okay? If, if that's what you think of, you are in the right place at the right time. And we're going to help you with that. But why is the Costco food court not considered an intimate dinner? Well, it's obvious, right? It's, it's a big place, and there's lots of people around. It's very public. And, and it's one of the only places, have you noticed this? It's one of the only places where if you sit down at a table for four with just the two of you, like two strangers will come and share a table with you. What other restaurant does that happen? And they won't introduce themselves to you. They, they won't really talk to you. They'll just eat their hot dogs and leave. It happens nowhere else but at Costco. But we wouldn't consider that to be an intimate dinner, would we? Why? Is it because it's not fancy? No, it's got nothing to do with how fancy or expensive it is. It has to do with the fact of the setting and the environment. You see, you could take your Costco pizza home with you, and if it was just the two of you at your dinner table, the food is the same. But now we have an intimate dinner because we've gotten closer to just the two of us. So this word intimate kind of means. And some of us will experience this idea of intimate relationships through, through a very, very close friend. We'll experience it through family. But most of us in this life will experience it within the context of marriage. You see, uh, uh, apart from our relationship with God, that is often the most intimate relationship a person will ever have. It's certainly the most intimate relationship I personally have ever had, and I believe I will ever have, is my relationship with Nadine. And, and our story is kind of common, I think. You know, it's, it might be similar to your story in a lot of ways, where, you know, it's that, that typical story of, you know, boy meets girl, girl thinks boy's a loser, right, that, that old thing, right? But then the boy likes a challenge, and so the boy tricks her into going on a date by inviting her to a large group event, but then telling the group to go somewhere else to make it more intimate, and then the girl has to decide if that's creepy or charming, right? Good news, she thought it was charming. So, and so eventually the girl decides to date this boy, and they go from dating to the boy proposes, and the girl says yes. And so now we got to plan a wedding. And we went to a good church at the time and had a wonderful pastor, so we asked him to be the one to marry us. And he had one condition. It's the same condition I have. I have, I have never married anybody in the 17 years I've been a pastor. I've never married a single couple without going through marriage preparation first. 
and that was actually one of his requirements. And so we thought, this is great, because we don't really know what we're getting into. We've never been married before. We're in our early 20s, and, and, and this is a huge mystery. We're so thankful for the marriage prep. And so he invited us to his home, and he sat us down at his kitchen table one afternoon. And, and here, here's how our marriage prep went. We watched this short, stout, jovial Jamaican man stir a pot of tripe and beans while we listened to him, number one, tell us that the tripe was too spicy for us Canadians, and then number two, say, you have a good home and good parents, you'll be just fine. That was the master plan. That was the master plan for marriage. Be like your mom and dad and don't eat tripe. That, that, was, that was the plan for the rest of our lives. That's what we got. I hope I hope you got more than that when you hopefully did your marriage preparation. But there's some truth in that. There is truth in what he told us, that tripe is terrible. If you have ever tried it, it actually is. It is terrible. You should not eat tripe. But it's also true that it's good to have good role models. But here's where it falls apart. Having good role models is not enough. So I used to live next door to a guy who played in the NHL. But that didn't make me a good hockey player. Being in the proximity of these things does not make you an expert in these things. And so we got married, and we struggled. We would read books. We'd, we'd go to courses. We'd, we'd get some advice. We'd go through a lot of trial and error as we tried to piece it all together. We tried to piece it together. But here's what really made the difference. Here's what made the difference for us. One of the biggest things is that we came to learn that God did not just create us for intimate relationships. We came to learn that God did not just create this thing that we refer to as marriage, but he actually had a plan for it as well, and that we weren't on our own, that we could actually dive into his plan, and we could start to piece it together according to his plan. And, and, and one of the most amazing things about this plan is that it's almost too simple because it's contained in a single verse in Genesis 2, 24, where God says this. He says, this is why a man leaves his mother and father and he is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That's it. That, that's the plan. Now, it's going to take us a few weeks to unpack that plan. It's going to take us a few weeks to discuss the, the power and the purpose behind each of those key phrases. But as we see each of these pieces, we'll actually find a blueprint that we can piece together God's plan for marriage. And, and the three key phrases are these. Number one, we need to leave we need to unite, and we need to become one flesh. Those of you who have a King James Version Bible or, or have read that in the past, you'll, you'll know that these words, this is a preacher's best friend, words that rhyme, right? The old King James will say this, you need to leave, weave, and cleave are the three things that it talks about. Leaving means that we need to leave something to enable trust to be built. And when we can leave something to enable trust to be built within this relationship, all of a sudden faith starts to grow. And we can weave our lives together, weaving meaning joining together, uniting two lives together. And, and when we have a relationship that includes trust and we are weaving our lives together, suddenly we have hope for the future. And then we can cleave. We can build passion. And we can experience love like God planned. Faith, hope, and love. You ever been to a wedding and not heard those things? Faith, hope, and love. You ever been to a wedding and not heard 1 Corinthians 13? That says, now these three remain. Faith, 
hope, and love. And the greatest of these, the one that we're pursuing, the one that permeates all of them, the one that finds its origin in God himself, the greatest of these is love. You see, your marriage is designed to be an expression of faith, hope, and love. As it's lived in community with another person as a divine picture of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, there might be some people here who, who, who are encouraged by hearing these words, but you're already thinking, you can't teach this old dog any new tricks. I've been married too long. I, I, I'm going to bet there's some out there, and, and I get that. I understand that. But, but here's something that happened this week. I was, I was online, and I saw a video of a guy who caught a cat had a fetch. And, and there's this weird thing that happened. I thought, if a guy can teach a cat who is pure evil and selfish how to catch, anything is possible, right? Like, like there's hope for anything to be possible. So maybe, maybe even the old dogs can learn a few things through these next few weeks. Because if you can teach a cat how to fetch, anything is possible, isn't it? So let's begin today by looking at this first phrase. What does it mean to leave? What does it mean to make, excuse me, to make space for the other so that trust can be established and trust can grow within our marriages? Now, this phrase probably seems pretty straightforward to begin with. A man will leave his mother and father and he will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. Now, the way that we typically experience this idea of leaving is that a person reaches a stage of life, whether it's age or stage, whatever it may be, where they leave home. They, they physically leave home. They, they, they financially leave mom and dad's care. They get out from mom and dad's rules and authority and go forge their own life and, and their own family. Sometimes this happens when uh, a person leaves to uh, get their own place. They just move out get their own place, they get their own roommates, maybe they go to college. For, for a lot of people, it happens when they get married. And a person physically, financially, and in terms of authority, leaves mom and dad's home, and they go get their own mailing address. They start paying their own bills, and they start making their own decisions. I got my own rules in my own house. But, but here's the thing, that's how we commonly experience it, and sometimes how we often think, this idea of leaving, like you're married, Boop, get out. That's how we think about leaving sometimes. But if you go back to the original text, to the time when this was written, in the ancient Near Eastern customs, and, and, and the people who would have originally read this, that didn't happen. That's not what biblical history tells us leaving is about. You see, when a man and a woman got engaged, which is referred to as betrothal in scriptures, they, they, would, they would sign a legal document that was legally binding to the point where if they broke off their engagement, it was considered divorce. And so they would become betrothed, but between the betrothal and the wedding, the husband would then go prepare the bridal chamber, which is the place that they're going to live once they're married. Now, this wasn't a separate residence. What the husband would do is he would go back home and he would build a room onto the side of mom and dad's house. And then when the time came, he would go and get his bride and he would bring her back home. So leaving did never actually mean a change of address. What it meant was it was a change of bedrooms with adding a wife to the room. 
And the reason being is because if every time a son went off and started a new home or started a new homestead and brought his wife and had to start all over from the beginning, it'd be very hard. It would also be detrimental to the family of origin because in that time and place, the family compound required many, many hands. The son's skills, his presence, his contribution, his protection was required in the home still. So there actually was no physical leaving. There was no financial leaving. There was a degree of leaving under authority, but, but that is a little bit different than we think as well. So if it wasn't physical and it wasn't financial, what does this mean to leave? What it means to leave is that the son and the daughter were leaving past loyalties to make room for the new one. They were changing their identities. They weren't losing their identities. Don't hear me saying that. They weren't losing themselves as individuals, but they were reprioritizing the loyalties that exist in their lives because they had to make room for this new one, which actually would become the primary one. You see, when, when they got married, they were still sons and daughters, but they are now primarily husbands and wives. That's a change, isn't it? They were no longer single. They were now a couple. It was no longer about a me, it was now about a we on how they lived. Their identities changed. They had to leave the past to make room for this new paradigm of how they identified and how their loyalties existed. And did you know, you may not have been aware of this or realized this before, but this is actually what is symbolically expressed in the giving away of the bride during a wedding. It's not just some tradition we do for no reason. When, when, when a father walks down the aisle with his, with his daughter, and they get to the front, and the pastor says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And he says, you know, her, her mother and I, and then he passes, he kind of hands her off like a football to, to the husband. It feels like a football handoff sometimes. And then and they walk up here. There's this, there's this change. It's symbolic of this change that takes place. Now, because of that, sometimes I'll do something different during a wedding. Sometimes when I have the, the bride and groom at the front, I'll have both sets of parents come join them. There'll be six people at the front. And as they all stand at the front together with the parents and the son and daughter, I will thank mom and dad on behalf of the couple for, for their effort, for their sacrifice in preparing their children for this momentous day. I'll speak about their good influence that brought their children to this day and how they are now going off to form a new family. I'll confirm for mom and dad that, that they have fulfilled one of the primary tasks that they have as parents is to prepare their children, but then to release their children to new adventures and new responsibilities. And I'll actually ask mom and dad themselves right there at the start of the ceremony to make their own vows, to affirm their own vows, to accept new roles in their kids' lives, to support and encourage their son and daughter in the new life that they will serve, no longer only as sons and daughters, but now primarily as husband and wife. You see, to leave has this fundamental shift of identity. To leave is to make room for the new. Not abandoning. We're not talking about abandoning all of the good things from the old. Because we're still sons and daughters. And for most of us, we come from good families and we want to have that close to us. We don't want to lose that, but we do need to shift it a little bit. We don't want to lose our identities because we still have our own likes. We still have our own dreams. We still have our own needs. But now we have a partner who part of their role is to help us to realize those together. 
And let me just say this, if you have a partner who demands that shift, if you have a partner who blows all other identities and all other responsibilities out of the water so that only they remain, that is unhealthy. That's unhealthy and it could potentially be abusive. Because you still have your identity, your hopes, your dreams, your likes. But you want to have a partner who helps you to realize those together now. And here's the thing. We've talked a lot about weddings so far, but this is not just for newlyweds. This is not just a one-time thing. But the reality is that throughout your married life, new threats will emerge. New opportunities will emerge that will vie for your loyalty in life. And so we constantly, throughout our time of marriage, we constantly need to be evaluating if there's anything that we need to leave. If there's anything we've allowed in that we need to ask to move out of our lives. It often begins at the wedding with leaving mom and dad in the sense we've been talking. For some people, it sometimes is them leaving their roommates. For other people, there's, there's other people or influences that they need to leave and kind of put to the, put to the second seat and not the primary seat. Some people have customs. Some people have a lot of baggage from the past, whether that be past relational wounds that they have not dealt with and bring to the present with them. Sometimes people have addictions that they bring with them and that they're so bound to that they need to leave. But then later in life, we find other things too, where where as we advance in our careers, we start to travel more and the demands increase, and that threatens later in life to move in. Sometimes our health starts to deteriorate later in marriage. And all of a sudden we have to decide, well, do I keep this secret? Or do I, and and therefore go into isolation? Or do I allow my partner to know what it is? You see, the difference on that one is if I keep it a secret and I live it in isolation, I have made that my highest loyalty. Because I've kept it a secret from somebody who is therefore in second place. Or do I share it with them and allow them to be my partner? And we share this together. As we get older, we end up going from being kids to having kids. And now our identity is, okay, are we still going to be husband and wife first because we're now a mom and dad as well? Or do we start to worship our kids higher than our spouse? There's all these things throughout. This is not just a one-time thing when we get married. There's things throughout our entire lives that we constantly need to be vigilant for to guard and protect against. And now notice, none of these things are bad things. None of them are bad things. But they only become bad if they become primary things. Because when they become primary things, they start to threaten our marriage. See, throughout our marriages, we need to be asking the question, is there something from my past or my present that is vying for my loyalty? Is there anything that I need to leave? Is there anything that I need to leave in order to protect my marriage so that trust can be built and can be guarded? Does this make sense? I hope so. Oh, it's a critical thing. And if, if it doesn't, whether you're preparing for, for a marriage or if you're a newlywed or maybe our young family, maybe you're a little more seasoned, I, I want to help you to visualize a little bit of what this looks like so we really understand what it means to leave. Okay? Now, remember, I started talking about intimacy at the very beginning. And there's intimacy on everything that we have in our lives. Okay? Regardless of what it is, everything has some level greater or le- less of intimacy to our lives. Now, the closer to the center it is in our lives, the greater the intimacy that we experience, right? And we've all got stuff we bring with us. We've all got stuff in our lives that we bring with us from the past, and we've also got stuff in the present. And all of our stuff 
gets plotted on this chart somewhere in level of intimacy to us. You know, there, there's things in my life that, that I would plot on my chart. Like, like the first thing I mentioned is, because is, I was thinking, well, what about God, right? God, yeah. I have an intimate relationship with God, and, and God kind of permeates all of these things. So we'll just establish that off the start. So our relationship with God kind of permeates all of these things. But, but then I also have a relationship with, with my truck. Right? I love my truck. I've had my truck for 12 years, still going strong. Love my truck, right? Go do- Team Dodge. And so my truck would plot on there somewhere. I love hockey. It's on there. I love my job. I, I love my parents. I, I love my buddies. I, I love going to the gym. All these things. You can make your own list. All these things would plot somewhere in proximity to the center of your life. All these people, places, and things, and activities. The closer to the center, the greater the feeling of intimacy that you'd have with them. I, I feel like I forgot one. Oh, Nadine. Yes. Nadine is on the list there, too. I feel like I should invite Nadine. To come up here. Because Nadine is on the list there as well. And you choose what is closest proximity to you for better or for worse. You want to have a seat? Oh, right. My stuff's in the way, isn't it? Oh, maybe, um, you want to maybe do like a half cheek sneak? You want to share? Oh, well, when you're ready, you can move my stuff for me. I'll just wait. Not going not gonna to move it for me? You can't, can you? The reality is, i got to move my stuff. Why? Because it's my stuff. <laughs> and quite honestly, if, if she touched my stuff, and maybe you felt this before, if, somebody, if you've got somebody who sits this close to you, and they touch your stuff, it hits a nerve. And I'm probably going to lash out and be like, don't touch my stuff. Because it's a threat to me all of a sudden. Because if I have it that close to, to me and somebody tries to move it, I feel threatened that the thing closest to me is being removed. And all I can do now is move my stuff and invite Nadine to sit down. And now we're at the middle. To have you in the middle. Now, here's the thing I gotta move my stuff and invite her to sit down, but then, then it's up to her. Because I also, here's something else I can't do I can't force her to sit down. The best I can do is make room for her and extend an invitation. But if I demand that she sits down, if I somehow force her through making her feel guilty, or through punishing her by withholding part of myself. But well, as soon as you as soon as you get in line with what I want and I need, you can have it back. If I do that, any of that sort of stuff, at best, that's manipulative. And at worst, it's abusive. But in either case, it's unbiblical. In either case, it's unbiblical. Why? Because it absolutely violates how we understand love. You know the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, it says this about love. It says, love does not delight in evil, but love rejoices in the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. See, love is described in the Bible is this other-focused, sacrificial devotion to the other that puts the other above my stuff so that they can sit beside me 
as my most intimate and closest relationship that I have. And, and when that happens, this, this type of love is built on a foundation of trust. And it's a trust that we can only earn over time. We can only earn over time as we sit together in proximity and share with each other integrity and loyalty. Does that make sense? Now, there's been times in our lives, and mine in particular, where I have not done this well. I think of a time in particular uh, before I was a pastor when I would, I would travel a lot for work. And we enjoyed that time of life in a lot of ways because I was making a lot of money. We were having a lot of fun with it. And we had all sorts of stuff because of it. And outwardly, people would even come to us and they would be envious of some of the things that we were experiencing, some of the things that we had in life. They were envious of us because outwardly, it looked awesome. But over the years that I was doing that, I, I, you know, I'd check into a hotel at night and I'd meet some guy in the lobby and he's like, hey, let's go grab dinner, drink, and watch a game. And so I'd meet all sorts of people on the road and we'd go, you know, watch these games, get to know their lives a little bit. And all these guys that I kept going for dinner with, I found out, like, most of them were divorced. And I thought, huh, what about the common causes? And, and as, as they would share more of the story, I'd be like, well, the common causes, their jobs, their jobs and the temptations of the traveling world that they were living within. And they just weren't managing their lives well. And I thought, not us. We're a good Christian family, a good Christian couple. Will not happen to us. We're fine. And then the industry got slow for a little bit. It was in the lumber industry, and there was a big slowdown for a while. A bunch of mills shut down, so I wasn't traveling as much. And I was home for a few weeks in a row, because I used to travel like three out of four weeks every month. And all of a sudden, I'm home for like a month at a time. And if I was home for more than a couple of days, you know, we'd actually we'd start to fight. Right? And, and Nadine turned to me one day after I was home for about two and a half weeks. She turned to me one day, and she goes, would you just leave already? There's that word. Would you just leave already? And it was then that we realized we were actually living three lives. We were living our life together. But then there was her life while I was on the road, and there was my life while I was on the road. And out of those three lives, the one with us together was not in the center. It had been moved off to the side where work and travel and stuff had moved in the middle, and our lives together was moving off to the side. You know what path it was on? The exact same path as all those other guys that I met. It was heading towards that path. I don't know where it would have gone because we made the decision to reprioritize and to move us back to the middle. That was about 20 years ago. So it seemed to have worked. So, and I'm glad to have you in the center with me still. So, (laughs) anyways, thanks, Henry. Yeah. So I hope that helps you understand this concept a little bit. You know, when Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was talking to his disciples about how to order their lives and their relationship with God. And you might remember this very, very well-known verse. And Jesus is telling them that they need to put first things first. That they need to stop worrying about all the other things and put first things first. And he cautioned his followers. He says... I understand you had this need for food and for clothes and for security. I understand that. And I understand how important they are to you. I understand how close to the center those things are. Like, like we, we don't want to put clothes, like, way over there. Like, thank you all for not putting clothes out there, like, for, for actually caring about having clothes on. We, I'm glad you're here today with clothes. So, like, it's important. We're not saying that we abandon those things. 
It's important. We have close to the center our desire for food and for clothes and for security. But they're not our highest priority. And when we have them as our highest priority, it leads to anxiety and, and fear. And not only that, but also Jesus was saying how it pulls our focus off the mission that God's called us to. And it, and it leads us to lack trust in him. If we're worrying about those things, then we're not trusting in him for those things. And, and that's what Jesus says in, in Matthew 6.33 when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the things of God and God's mission and plan and reality in your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added unto you as well. He's not saying that they're bad things. He's not saying they're bad things. We need food. We need clothing. We need security. God knows those things. He knows about all the other things that we need and desire and require. But just like brushing your teeth and drinking orange juice, order matters, doesn't it? (laughs) There's an order to those things that matters. C.S. Lewis explained it this way. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, if you put first things first, you get second things thrown in. But if you put second things first, you lose both first and second things. If you put first things first, you get second things thrown in. But if you put second things first, you lose both first and second things. That's true in our relationship with Jesus. And the principle holds true in our relationship with our spouse. So how do we do that? How do we put them first? in this biblical manner. Well, we need to be mindful of three things, of primacy, privacy, and power. I'll really quickly go through these. What do you mean by privacy? Well, it's somewhat self-explanatory. Whoever is closest to us knows the closest things about us. There are things that we will discuss with our spouse that nobody else has any business knowing about. And we need to discuss those things with our spouse. We need to feel the trust and the freedom to do so. But then we also need to know that there is security where those things don't get shared. You see, anything that will cause our partner shame or embarrassment needs to be kept private. And, and sometimes we're not great at this. Like I may or may not have violated this at some point in the past. I'm, I'm sure all of us to some degree have. Maybe you find yourself in a situation at one point where you're hanging out with some friends, having a good time, and just chatting and, and you know, telling jokes and whatnot, and, and somebody, somebody, somebody smells something. It, go off and you're like oh it's probably my wife's feet right you think it'll be funny in your head before you say it and then it comes out and you're like "Uh, nope that wasn't funny (laughs) and sure enough she's shooting a glare across the room at you and there's a silent treatment that comes why because you invited somebody into the inner circle you violated a privacy there are some things that are just private primacy This means that the marriage and your spouse come first over all other relationships. Now, be careful with this one. Coming first does not mean at the expense of all other relationships. It's not about that. But there will be times when we have competing appointments and competing demands and responsibilities, and we have to make a choice. We have to make a decision. Imagine, for example, a situation where a husband comes to his wife and says, you know, I've had a really long season at work. I, I, just, I would love to have some time of rest and quiet this Easter. Can we, just, can we just have a quiet family Easter dinner? But then the wife's mom is saying, I want to have a big Easter dinner at your house. What do you do? Only one of those can happen. Only one can happen. Now, Primacy does not mean the husband wins by default 
over the mom. That's not what this means. What it means is that this husband and wife need to come together and talk about this. And to take into account all people concerned and then make what is the best decision for them. Free of outside interference. Free of outside opinions. Whatever is best for us. The husband doesn't win by default. His opinion matters. The wife's opinion matters. The mother's opinion matters. It all matters. But they need to decide what is best for them. Even if mom's going to be disappointed. Even if the husband has to change his expectations a little bit. If it's best for them, that's what has to happen. Because the marriage has to come first. But then power. Power is, is this idea that your spouse must know that there is no other power apart from God that exists before them. There is no power apart from God that exists before them. I, I don't always view this well, as I mentioned, between you know, work and, and, and church demands and from traveling to media. They, I struggle with this sometimes because there's so many demands, so many things that try to influence power upon my time. And maybe you can relate to that a bit. But to the absolute best of my ability... I never ask Nadine to compete for my love and loyalty. And I know that she does the same, where she never asks me to compete for her love or her loyalty either. And when we do that well, what we begin to do is we start to make space in our lives for each other, and we allow trust to be established and trust to build. And I know that I've blown it in the past. All, all of us have. It's, it's part of the nature of being human, isn't it? But here's the good news if you've blown in the past. Maybe you're blowing it right now. Here's the good news. Trust is primarily grown through repairs and violation. That might sound odd that, that violations actually lead to the growth of trust, but that quite often is where trust grows, is through repairs of those violations. Now, I'm not talking here about somebody who maliciously and intentionally schemes and connives to get their own way. That, that, that doesn't grow trust at all. I mean, I mean these moments where we misstep where we look back and go, man, if I could do that over again, I would do it so differently. I mean, those violations, the ones that lead us to, to seek forgiveness, the ones that lead us to desire to grow and to know our partner even more than we do today, the ones that, that, that draw us to become mindful of, of giving our partner the, the privacy and, and the primacy and the power the, the ones, the, those violations that we seek forgiveness and want to know more about that then lead to this environment where we actually have opportunity for ever-deepening levels of trust. And that's why this is not just a one-time thing. Leaving is not just a one-time thing. Leaving is something we do throughout our lifetime together as we seek to deepen these bonds. You know, as I close this part, uh, I just want to share with you a, a brief story. Uh, by a guy named Dan Allender, who you might know, he's a prominent Christian uh, therapist and author. And, and he was talking about this principle from his own story. And he said there's this time when he was married to his wife for about 19 years, and she told him a story from her childhood. And it was not an uncommon story, but it was a sad story. It was a story about when she was in grade four and she was bullied, just maliciously bullied by some other girls. And as she told the story, she was, she was crying, and, and it was really hard for her to get the words out, but she wanted to share it with him. And he just wanted to give her a hug. And, and he wanted to wipe away the tears. And, and he wanted to make those nine-year-old girls pay. <laughs> you can understand the response, right? But then it dawned on him. Why, after 19 years, have I never heard this story before? And so he asked his wife a little while later, what, what prompted you to tell me that story now? 
after 19 years. And the answer she gave him was completely different than he expected. Because the answer she said as she thought about it, she goes, well, I trust you now in a way that I didn't a year ago. Now, he didn't know whether to be offended or to be encouraged by that. But the reality was that they were experiencing this fresh reality that trust has never reached kind of the bedrock bottom. There is no bottom. Trust is like a well that we can continue to dig deeper and deeper and deeper continually throughout our lives. There is no bottom. And he discovered in this moment after 19 years when he thought he knew his wife, everything about her, every story about her, every pain and every challenge and everything about her, finally 19 years she shares this story. And she was willing to do it because the events of their year prior of investing in each other had dug their well a little deeper. And now she felt enough trust to share this with him for the first time in two decades. See, throughout our marriages, we continue to make space for the person beside us and to keep them at the center with us. And if we can do that, we will build an ever-deepening sense of trust that will lead to a hope for the future, which we'll talk about next week, and an expression of love that is beyond what we could ever experience. To the first step, though, in God's framework of piecing it all together for a God-honoring marriage is to leave to make room for the other. How do we do that? Well, if you want to take a first step in doing that, we need to acknowledge sometimes that there is something between you and your significant other. We need to name it. And we need to confess it. And it, it does no good. And sometimes there's a tendency, when I, when I do a lot of counseling with people, this is one of the first things I'm always watching for. And so I want to caution you about this. It does very little good, if any good at all, for you to identify where your partner has gone wrong. Oh, I, I, they're gonna, I want them to hear this message today. I, I hope they're listening. Maybe. Maybe that's going to help. I can guarantee you what will help, though, is to reflect upon yourself. What difference does this make for you? And we need to each be willing and vulnerable enough to take that deep dive inside ourselves and not worry first and foremost about how my partner needs to get better. But what do I need to confess? What do I need to leave? Who do I need to seek out for godly counseling so that maybe if I leave something and create space beside me, my partner will come and sit down and all of a sudden, wait a second, maybe I was part of the problem. And part of the issue we were having is I didn't allow them to sit down beside me because I never dealt with my stuff. It begins by looking within ourselves. You know, and, and there's a similar path that we use when we talk about when we talk about having a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, in, in view of eternity, it does no good for us to ignore our own sin. And in view of eternity, it does no good for us to try to just deal with or hide our sin on our own. We need the humility that acknowledges, I am not the solution to my sin. I am the cause of my sin. And I need to seek out godly help. You know, and, and that's what we remember and that's what we affirm during communion. It is. When we, when we come to the communion table together, we, we remember that Jesus dealt with our sin upon the cross. The, the bread is symbolic of his body in which he lived and ministered and, and offered in place of us. And the cup symbolic of his blood, meaning life, that he gave as a ransom for us. And this great exchange that took place 
Whereas he gave his life, we received life. And, and that's what we remember. And that's what we seek to affirm when we come together to participate in communion. That Jesus paid it all. And he dealt with it upon the cross. And because of that, we can leave our sin in the past and grow in our trust with him. And as we weave our stories together with Jesus, we start to have a hope for the future and can experience his love. And it's no coincidence that all of that actually mirrors God's plan for marriage. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, our marriages are to be this divine picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. Where Jesus came and paid the bride price in his own blood upon the cross. And then he went away to prepare a place for us to dwell with him eternally. And he will come back for us at a time in the future with the blast of the trumpet and the shout of joy. And we'll be taken to be with him and we will join together in our lives with him forever. Where scripture then says that we will also take part in the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so as we prepare for this time together around the communion table, I, I want to ask you to consider... Is there anything in your life that you need to leave that maybe it's something you need to confess that has taken the first place of Jesus in your life? We've, we've talked a lot about marriage today and about how we need to have our partner, that most intimate relationship, closest to us. But our relationship with Christ, is there anything that we need to confess to allow him to be the closest thing to us? And out of honor to him and out of the price that he paid and out of the promise he gave us for the future to make that choice. Let me just leave that question with you while we reflect and then we'll take the elements together at the table here.